Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. With President Biden reaching 100 days in office this Friday, his administration's China policy apparatus is nearly solidified. In this segment, the Brownstein government relations team discusses the latest activity on China policy, from developments on Capitol Hill to Pennsylvania Avenue, as well as how bipartisan focus on U.S.-China relations could recalibrate private sector advocacy in Washington, D.C. Thanks, everyone, for joining for another Brownstein podcast. My name is Greta Joins. I am a senior policy advisor here at Brownstein, um, and I work uh, on a lot of issues, but primarily on our tech and telecoms team. And additionally, joining me today, we have Samantha Carl Yoder, who's a recent addition of the Brownstein team. She served for nearly 20 years as a foreign service officer at the State Department, working in both Washington and in a number of embassies around the world. Uh, We also have Ari Zimmerman, a Republican advisor at the firm, who most recently served as a professional staff member on the House Armed Services Committee. And also Sean Callahan, who's also a very new arrival here at Brownstein, who served for Democratic members of both the House and the Senate Armed Services Committees, and most recently was Deputy Chief of Staff to uh, Senator Hirono. So to get into it and help table set the conversation, I think it would be really helpful to provide some context around the approach of the Trump administration was to China. Ari, you worked on a lot of these issues um, on China during the Trump administration, both on the Hill and on behalf of our clients. Could you provide a pre, sort of an overview of what happened during that time so listeners have the full picture of what the new administration inherited? When Trump took office, um, the U.S. had about a $400 billion trade deficit with China. And so in early 2018, uh, the president kicked off the, the quote-unquote trade war, which uh, mainly included a series of increased tariffs on imported Chinese goods. China, therefore, increased tariffs on U.S. imported goods prior to uh, a deal being struck on exports and imports. But I think the real story here is, is on the many defensive trade practices that uh, the Trump administration, primarily through the Department of Commerce, utilized to try and starve the Chinese Communist Party's technological rise. And and I think I'll just um, mention a few of them here. So as part of the FY19 National Defense Authorization Act, the government effectively banned Huawei and ZTE, which are China's largest telecommunications companies from the United States, and also included a law called FIRMA, which increased scrutiny on all Chinese investments uh, within the United States. The administration also publicized a list of private Chinese entities that were supporting the the CCP and its military. And DOD had been required to track these companies since 1999, but but had never previously been public. That list now includes dozens of Chinese companies. And to add teeth to that action of publicizing the companies, President Trump issued an executive order prohibiting any U.S. person from investing in these companies. So that list may also now grow substantially, which is something to keep an eye on, as the FY21 National Defense Authorization Act uh, grossly expands the definition of what companies may actually qualify. And and just on this point briefly, uh, President Trump also signed into law the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, which increases oversight of Chinese military companies listed on U.S. stock exchanges, 
uh, and may force the delisting of those that, that failed to comply with U.S. audit practices. President Trump also made broad use of the entity list, which is a Commerce Department national security tool, essentially which, which bans the sale or transfer of technologies to any entity or person on that list. Uh, and in total, Trump put more than 300 Chinese entities on the list to include everything from Chinese you know, massive telecommunications companies like Huawei, semiconductor manufacturers like SMIC, as well as commercial drone manufacturers like DJI, uh, who control approximately 80% of, of global market share. And I think the last point I'll make uh, on this, Greta, is the now adopted executive order through the Department of Commerce known as the Information and Communications Technologies, or, or ICT, Supply Chain Rule. Uh, the rule allows the Department of Commerce incredible power and latitude to review and prohibit any transaction involving a U.S. person and an entity operating in a foreign adversary nation within any ICT supply chain sector. So, Greta, that's a lot. And again, you can speak at length uh, to the effects of each of these actions uh, and, and you know, what impact they truly had on the relationship and if, if uh, they actually worked uh, in the eyes of U.S. policymakers. But I think the breadth of these uh, and many more speaks to the current state of, of U.S.-China relations. And it'll be very interesting to see uh, where the Biden administration takes these uh, and goes from here. Thanks, Ari. I think that was, you know, certainly a very thorough overview. And I, I, I do think it's, it's interesting because it, it certainly does give the current administration a, a lot of flexibility to determine what tools they want to use going forward. And, and speaking of the Biden administration, you know, we're just about at the 100 day mark and we're already seeing both its foreign policy team and, and its approach to international relations, you know, take form. Samantha, having worked during the Obama administration, you're familiar with a lot of the people who have filtered into these senior positions. Uh, can you provide some insight into the key players regarding China policy, what actions they've taken so far, and what options do you think are on the table going forward? Absolutely. I think what's also really interesting to look at right now is that not only is China an important foreign policy issue, but certainly it is a domestic policy issue. And I think what that really means is that the administration alone is not going to be able to just create China policy without really having a, a conversation with the Hill and all that entails. And, you know, we'll turn to Sean in a minute because I think Sean has some great insights on that. But you saw that play out during the confirmation process when nearly, if not all cabinet nominees were asked questions about their position on China. How tough would they be on China? What policies would they continue and change? And I think this is really notable in the sense that, you know, you looked in the last four years, the United States has become more hawkish on China but with a real reason. The China that we're dealing with now is not the China that existed when Obama did his famous pivot to Asia. And it really just shows that the, the Biden team can't go back to status quo ante, that they really need to figure out exactly how to deal with China going forward. And I think what you're really going to see is a continuation of a tough stance on China with also some ability to have some diplomatic engagement. So you asked about what actions so far, and I think there's been several notable actions um, that we can highlight here. I think the first is that the administration is really committed to doing a strategic review of China policy. They want to see what's working and what's not. 
Ari just laid out the myriad of options or or policies the Trump administration put into place. And frankly, there's a recognition by many within the Biden administration that while they might not have liked the manner in which the Trump administration put these policies into place, that frankly, they're not necessarily wrong. And I think that's really important because the administration, Kirk Campbell, Jake Sullivan and others, they're reviewing what policies exist with an eye towards what is working, looking very specifically at how this affects U.S. companies, how it affects investments in the United States, trying to maintain a tough stance on China, particularly in the areas of energy, infrastructure, semiconductors, uh, technology. But they also really want to create a space for diplomacy and engagement. And this policy review is going to take time. It's going to be complicated, um, but you're seeing it permeate through the different uh, agencies. In DOD, they have uh, ordered a review of China policy. Eli Ratner is leading that now to see where um, the Defense Department needs to change or, or, or pivot a little bit on where it's, how it's handling China. You know, the administration at the end of February put out an executive order on supply chain security, looking at vulnerabilities at supply chains and really wanting to look at sort of what the threats exist against U.S. national security. And while it doesn't mention China specifically, at the end of the day, reading through the lines, it's a conversation about China. The Biden administration has put additional sanctions into place, um, something that I think prior to uh, President Biden taking office, people didn't think he was going to necessarily do. But they've had additional sanctions on seven supercomputer companies. You have sanctions for human rights issues and other things. What you're seeing, though, is sort of a broader swath of, of policy. They're looking at China at policy from a more holistic perspective. On the diplomatic front, we've had the first face-to-face engagement between the two governments uh, happened in Alaska in March. The U.S. outlined both publicly and privately the concerns that it has over uh, Chinese policy with regard to human rights abuses, with regard to Taiwan, with regard to cybersecurity and cyber attacks and economic coercion. And I think, you know, this was the first instance where the U.S. was able to very clearly lay out its broad policy concerns to the Chinese. Some say that the conversation wasn't the greatest of conversations. I think that if you're taking a pragmatic look at it, it's a first step. It was not a strategic dialogue. I think Washington was very clear about that. It was a meeting, um, but it sort of sets the stage for, for ways to engage in the future on the diplomatic front. And so your last question is what's next? I think we'll see a couple of things. I think you'll see the United States having continued engagement, not just with China on a bilateral front. I think that will be slower where I think you'll see the United States working is with allies and partners to address the threats posed by China, broadly speaking. Uh, The Biden administration believes very firmly that multilateralism is a good thing. And so engaging with allies and partners will help to put the pressure on China to perhaps change its policies, particularly the economic front. You're going to see more engagement in the climate space. Secretary or former Secretary Kerry, the special presidential envoy for climate, was in Beijing just last week. It was the first high-level visit to Beijing, and all they talked about was climate. But I think at the end of the day, what you're going to see is a Biden administration that is likely to be tough on China. And what does this mean? It means they are unlikely to lift trade sanctions uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, because I think there's an assumption that they are working. But two, they're also leverage. So if the U.S. government wants something specific out of China, you can use the uh, the trade sanctions or sorry, the trade tariffs, I should say, as a specific leverage to move behavior. 
I would expect in the area of investment in the United States that there would be a higher level of scrutiny on any Chinese investments uh, under the CFIUS process, particularly in the national security space. I think you're going to see more scrutiny in areas such as 5G, semiconductors, telecoms, energy, infrastructure. And that, I think, has a broad impact on businesses that are either looking to do business with China or Chinese businesses that are looking to do business in the United States. And I think that U.S. and foreign companies that are doing business with China may just find that there are additional difficulties that they are facing uh, as they continue to do business with China. And I think you're going to see that manifest itself in a couple of different ways. And frankly, time will tell. I think that engagement between the business community and the administration will be of utmost importance. I think that folks really need to make sure that they are talking with people in order to say, this is how these policies are affecting us and help to shape how the Biden administration creates its policy towards China. Thanks. And I, I think that it's a really good transition at this point to to move to Sean, because the administration has certainly a lot of goals um, when it comes to China, and I, I think is probably a little bit unsure of how to use them. And and while Democrats do control Washington, they, they control it by such a slim margin that they really need the support of Congress um, for a lot of their efforts. So, Sean, you know, where where do you think congressional Democrats want to go on China? I mean, we have Leader Schumer, who's um, introducing his Endless Frontiers bill very soon. And so I, I'd love to sort of get your thoughts on what the folks at, you know, Hask and Sask think about. Um, you know, some of the China policies, and then maybe more broadly, you know, where are the the congressional Democrats and congressional re- Republicans, even outside of those committees, um, wanting to focus on going forward? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Greta. Um, I, I think we should start with why congressional Democrats see China competition as a key policy area to address. I think there's always been a handful of Democrats that is focused on um, the national security impacts of the continued investment uh, by China in their civil military fusion, um, the continued advancement of uh, the defense posture in the Asia Pacific. But I also think it's important that you have key people in, in that faction, like Majority Leader Schumer, driving the issue. But it's also a campaign talking point, right? We saw throughout the 2020 campaign uh, criticism of Democrats and, and President Biden specifically as being weak on China. And you hear moderate Democrats, especially within the Senate, to the likes of Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin and others, uh, clamoring for something bipartisan. And I think China competition is one of the um, very glaring areas that you see uh, both members of both parties interested in addressing. Um, so I think when you look at what's going to be coming down the pipes in Congress to consider, uh, there's a number of different initiatives. Uh, we'll start with the infrastructure bill. President Biden uh, has uh, proposed a very aggressive $2.3 trillion infrastructure bill that is both proactive and defensive in China competition. Um, anywhere from in, uh, domestic continued investment, you see enhanced manufacturing of $580 billion, uh, to the opportunities to address China technology, utilizing some of the different programs like the entities list, I think, could come into play as that's considered. I think largely, you know, when you look at the CHIPS initiative that he's proposed to uh, fund at $50 billion in that infrastructure bill, uh, largely a lot of the things included in that proposal are bipartisan. Where we get hung up is how to pay for it and some other issues. And you've seen um, frustration with the rate that that's moving on both the sides of the progressives like Senator Sanders, 
who says we're going to move on this any day and we don't have to wait for the Republicans uh, to Senator Manchin, who just yesterday um, suggested that the bill might be broken into four parts so that they could try to get bipartisan cooperation where there is some. Um, I think the other the other issue that has been moving very quickly, uh, aside from the infrastructure bill, is the Endless Frontier Act, which you mentioned earlier, Greta. It, we had a hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee on it last Wednesday. Uh, its introduction is imminent. I would guess that by the time this podcast is published, it will have been introduced. We've seen uh, some of the bill text for it. Um, Majority Leader Schumer wanted to introduce that last week, and his counterpart, uh, Senator Todd Young, wanted to try to gain some additional Republican co-sponsors prior to its introduction. Um, I think Lindsey Graham, uh, Susan Collins, and Rob Portman have now agreed to sign on to it, so we should see that introduced any day now. Uh, That bill on its face would include a $100 billion fund for a technology directorate in the National Science Foundation that would create a DARPA-like authority for investment in critical technologies. So those range anywhere from artificial intelligence to semiconductors, which have been addressed in a number of different programs, uh, to cybersecurity, biotechnology, robotics, and automation. Um, And otherwise, we'd also invest $10 billion to create regional technology hubs. I think when we see that bill come forward, uh, its end state is still to be determined. Um, It's going to follow a very open amendment process and include legislation that's been crafted by uh, a number of different committees, such as appropriations, finance, health, banking, energy and natural resources, and otherwise that Majority Leader Schumer directed to draft legislation to attach to to create this China uh, package. Um, The other bill is the Strategic Competition Act. Uh, which is actually a combination of several bills that have been introduced in, in prior Congresses. Uh, the American Leads Act from Senator Menendez, the Strategic Act from Senator Risch, and then components of the Democratic Technology Partnership Act uh, that was introduced by Senator Warner. Uh, that will actually have a hearing tomorrow in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, and it really looks to increase international collaboration in some of these different critical technologies uh, for competition with China. In addition to creating a technology partnership office within the State Department uh, that would have an ambassador to allied and partner nations on this technology development, it would also authorize a $300 million countering Chinese influence fund, of which the rules for are largely to be determined. Um, That technology office would also focus on language that was included in the the FY21 National Defense Authorization Act for the Multilateral Semiconductor Security Fund as well. And then I think last, as part of this package, you're going to see funding for the CHIPS Act that was also authorized in last year's uh, National Defense Authorization Act, uh, which authorized semiconductor incentives for R&D and fabrication facilities in last year's NDAA. Um, And appropriation to actually fund those programs will be a final part that's anticipated of any China package. Um, I think largely the CHIPS Act is very bipartisan. Uh, If not included or if this China legislation fails to advance, I think it'll find another legislative vehicle to attach itself to. I think the other critical piece of legislation this year that you'll see this China competition play out is in the National Defense Authorization Act, much like the past. Uh, President Biden has introduced his uh, skinny budget two weeks ago. Uh, It's at a level of funding at $715 billion for the defense budget. Uh, That is a slight increase from last year's budget, but well below uh, what the Trump administration had proposed in the future year's defense program. Uh, So you'll see that debated widely. I think progressive Democrats think that the number is too high, while Republicans are certainly going to make the case that the number is too low, especially while you're trying to advance different uh, programs like the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, uh, which is being 
requested for funding at about $5 billion uh, for the defense buildup uh, to address some of the different aspects of China. I would add that there's not been a lot of engagement on the House side uh, with some of these initiatives, so it'll be interesting to watch that play out. Uh, You're seeing the majority of the action take place in the Senate right now, aside from the administration's activities. And I will pause there and see if Ari wants to add anything. Yeah, thanks, Sean. The the receptivity in the House is is sort of remaining to be seen on where the House goes with a bill, for instance, like the Endless Frontier Act. What we do know is that the House is the House of Representatives is filled uh, with a number of China hawks uh, who want to take bold and aggressive action towards China. And I think that was borne out uh, with the advent of the House China Task Force which produced about a 140, 150-page report towards the end of last year, uh, which broke down competition with China on nearly uh, every level and included within the report um, six pillars uh, to which they addressed competition with China. And those are ideological competition, supply chain security, national security, technology, economics, and energy, um, and competitiveness. The, the report um, also laid out dozens and dozens um, of, of legislative recommendations for which to, to tackle um, each of these pillars. And I know um, that the House will want to get their hands on the Endless Frontier Act should it pass the Senate uh, and include its own ideas. And so it, it remains to be seen uh, what exact role the House will play in the crafting of, of such a large and ambitious package. But we certainly know uh, that they'll want to impact it if they can. Thanks. I think that's you know really helpful. Um, it's it's certainly a moving target, especially with a lot of these different bills. I think popping up and and sort of how the administration plans to work with Congress uh, going forward. Um, it's certainly going to be an interesting time for our team internally. In the last administration, we saw success positioning U.S. companies before policymakers in Congress and the administration on issues related to competition with China. Will we see that same level of of receptivity in the new government? And how might we advise clients to get involved as the administration and Congress continue to flesh out their approach to U.S.-China policy? So... This is a a great question for clients to think about. I really do believe that this administration is open to talking with businesses to hear their concerns, but also to hear some of their their ideas on how things can go forward. The one thing I would note is this administration um, is continuing to fill out its more senior ranks. And so starting off with some of the working level career folks and then rising up the ranks and just educating people, I think would be the first tip that I would recommend as they engage this administration. And I, I think, Sam, I would add to that, that, um, you know, a lot of this legislation that, that has so far come forward, I think there's a lot of work left to do with it. So, you know, in that guise, you can engage with lawmakers to make sure that your priorities are being considered when you talk about critical supply chains. Uh, can be both proactive and defensive. Um, you know, Congress and the administration are going to make decisions um, throughout this process that will obviously impact some of our clients um, so that education that Sam just talked about is is paramount as this legislation is formulated. And Greta, I would just have to agree with you. The, the prior administration was certainly receptive to uh, companies and, and our clients' concerns regarding any form of competition with China, in particular in the technology space. This administration seems uh, just as focused, uh, potentially, if not more. 
President Biden rolled out a, a more than $2 trillion infrastructure plan, uh, most of which uh, was to compete with China. And I think that we are expanding the definition uh, really of what infrastructure may mean. And if you're a company that, that is looking to partner with the federal government, my advice was, would be to get creative on how you can message around how your industry, your company competes with China or helps the United States uh, outcompete China uh, as President Biden's infrastructure plan mentions almost throughout it. Well, thanks everyone for joining today. You know, it's certainly been a robust discussion on China policy, and we imagine that we'll be back to revisit this topic probably again quite soon. But we look forward to you tuning in next time, and thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farbershreck podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.